Welcome to Unsung Heroes with Johnny, Daniel, James, and Sam. Our goal is to leave no hero unsung. Welcome to the Unsung Heroes podcast. I'm Johnny and I'm joined with a few of my friends. We have James. Hello. We have Samuel. Hey, hey. And we have Daniel. Zdarova! What? What is that? Zdarova, that's Russian. Yeah, uh, see, I know Russian, but I just know <laughs> well, clearly not that not. word. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Everything you just said was a lie. <laughs> it's, it's more like 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 slang high, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. see, I only I only speak Instead fancy of Russian. It's like Zdarova. You mm-hmm. could do Zdras, I guess. There's like a little bit slang. I've heard that before. Well, all right. This, we don't have to talk about this. <laughs> Welcome to the Russian podcast where we just <laughs> talk about Russian. No, that's people who are extraordinarily underqualified to do yeah, so. <laughs> yeah. So today um, I'm, I'm the one who will be uh, talking about this guy. We have another unsung hero here. His name is Norman Borlog. Borlog. Yeah, it's pretty, like, I feel like his name, like Norman Borlaug. Norman is a pretty normal name, but Borlaug <laughs> sounds like like something from an epic fantasy. Or something. <laughs> it just changes the whole name. Yeah, Norman's like your, you know, 32-year-old guy working in IT, and then you have Borlaug, which Borlaug is... Borlaug the Great. It's like, yeah. <laughs> the Borlaug of was Mordor. He, was he Scandinavian at all? Well, actually, yeah, his, uh, so he he's from America, but his great-grandparents emigrated from Norway. So, okay, yeah. so, so, so connection Ah, there. nothing yeah. like me. <laughs> Shalom. <laughs> okay. No, we're not bringing that back. <laughs> yeah, I feel like he's like IT by day and adventure fantasy man by night. Yeah. yeah. I like that. Well, as we're going to find out, he is a, a very scientific man. He's uh he's a scientist who ended up saving a lot of lives and pretty much revolutionized the way that we grow wheat crops. Um, so mm-hmm. it's it's pretty mm-hmm. pretty interesting uh, story here. I know obviously you're going to talk about this, but it's kind of a sneak peek. Give us like a specific statement that can kind of tell us. So what did he actually invent with relation to growing wheat or grain? Or he pretty much in the mid 20th century changed all over the world uh, what like the type of wheat that is grown. It, he made it more resistant to pestilence and made it able to yield a lot higher uh, level of grain. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. So I, I've heard of him before. Um, it's interesting. If you look at like graphs showing population growth and then like food availability, I, I forgot the exact metrics they're measuring here, but it's interesting because the food production kind of increases linearly. And if you look at the population increase in the 20th century, it's like exponential growth, right? Right. And then based on the trajectory that it was prior to the mid 20th century, the population curve looks like it's going to possibly, you know, yeah, overtake it, overtake it. But then all of a sudden it just shoots up like crazy. Food, the, the food, food, production. food production shoots up. Yeah. Is that because of Norman and his, um, well, I don't want to jump the gun a little bit here, but, uh, <laughs> essentially, essentially the answer to that question is, Yes, <laughs> we can attribute that to this guy. Wow. They're, the, they're the true Avengers of our time, man. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> wow. So, Johnny, how did you how did you hear about this guy? Uh, yeah. So, you know, a while ago, me and uh, me and James, this was like before we started doing the podcast. We did some 
uh, research into different unsung heroes that we might be able to do episodes about. And I had kind of forgotten about it. I didn't even like look at the list. I just kind of each week would do my own research. But this week I decided to look back at that list and there were some interesting people on there uh, and he was one of them. And I was like, you know, I, I really quick kind of looked up what he did, all that kind of stuff. I was like, this would be a pretty good episode. So awesome. nice. So yeah, without any further ado, I'm going to go ahead and get right into it. So Norman Borlaug, he was born in 1914 in Iowa. Uh, he worked on the family farm. Like I said, his great-grandparents had emigrated from Norway, and uh, they'd emigrated into kind of the Midwest region, so they had a lot of farmland. Growing up, all through like middle school and high school, he did fishing, hunting. Uh, they had cornfields that he helped to harvest, uh, oats. He raised pigs and chickens. So he was, he was really familiar with the whole farming aspect and, and farm life. So in high school, he attended Cresco High School, and he was very athletic. He played football, baseball, and he was on the wrestling team. That's when he was given the name Borlaug, apparently. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I W Borlaug. That's when he earned his name. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, but he um, really found a love of wrestling. Uh, he did that actually th- all throughout high school and college. He was on the varsity wrestling team in college, too. So he was, he was really good at it. And, you know, his family... Not not a lot of people had gone to college, you know, it, it kind of back then, this was, you right. know, in the 1930s, going to college wasn't, obviously you're in the Great, Great Depression, uh, and that long ago, not a lot of people actually were able to go to college. But he decided to go because of words that his grandfather had told him. Uh, his grandfather said to him, you're wiser to fill your head now if you want to fill your belly later on. Mm. Oh, wow. Wise words. Yeah, as we'll discover later on, that was... A little prophetic, honestly, because <laughs> he's not only filling his own belly, he's filling a lot of other people's bellies <laughs> later on. Yeah. Um, yeah, so because of those wise words from his grandfather, he decided to apply to the University of Minnesota, but he failed the entrance exam, actually. Man. Hmm. But that year, they were starting a new two-year college degree, and he was able to do that instead. And while he was doing that, he transferred into their forestry program. What, what all would that entail? Yeah, so their forestry program was about forest pathology, which is pretty much studying trees and forests and all the different diseases that might ail a tree. So like plant life, you know, all the fungus and stuff that would kill a tree, that's what they're studying and how they can preserve the, the forest. It's kind of like a tree doctor, basically. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, when I was in seventh grade... I wanted to be a forester. I had no idea what they did, but the thought of being in forests all day appealed to me. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have since uh, reevaluated my aspirations. Right. Wow. How does one get into that? That's my Blunder question. years. Well, usually you walk into a forest. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and then, it's like, I have found my calling. <laughs> you walk in, you're like, yep. This is it. Yes. <laughs> now, well, I mean, Norman Borlaug got into it because he was interested in the farm life growing up. He wanted to study agriculture, and their forestry program was really good in this uh, in this two-year college, so he decided to do that. Yeah, You know, it's incredible to me to see how right around his time, so many scientific discoveries are made because a lot of these scientists grew up on farms, so they have these mm-hmm. agricultural backgrounds and interests. Right. Yeah. I feel like a lot of days now, I mean, obviously because those inventions have, have already been made, people are moving on to more technological stuff. 
but the, you know, a lot of scientists these days aren't growing up on the farm. Right. Right. That is interesting to see. Yeah. I mean, obviously there are agricultural degrees. A lot of people get, you know, but there is kind of this shift in a way from the demographics of our country now, par- partially probably because of Norman. I-, I imagine there's so much less of the population that is actually living on farms. So yeah, I wonder right. if that has kind of shifted interest in the general population some away from that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So he he's studying forest pathology. And in between his studies, like while he's on breaks and stuff, he actually took maybe a year or so off uh, every now and then of college so that he could work uh, to raise money for the college. And he worked for the United States Forest Service in forest pathology. So he was kind of doing this internship while he was studying. But in his final year of his degree, he attended a lecture by Dr. Elvin Charles Stackman. And this guy was kind of the leading plant pathologist. So not forest pathologist, but plant pathologist. Totally different field. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they're big rivals against each other. (laughs) There's like the plant pathology and forest pathology football teams, you know, every year. They have like chants and everything. (laughs) Uh, No, well, he, he attended this lecture on plant pathology and... Dr. Stackman was giving this speech, and the speech was titled, These Shifty Little Enemies That Destroy Our Food Crops. And the speech was about this certain type of a parasitic fungus that plagues wheat fields called rust. Actually, the, the name of the fungus is rust. Oh. Uh, which is pretty interesting. No relation to the metal? Yeah, no. <laughs> They're distant cousins. Yeah, I'm, I'm assuming not. But. I wonder, like, is it... Is it the rust of the plant world or is rust in metal the rust of, of, the, the, of the metal, metal world? world? I don't know. <laughs> I guess we'll never know. <laughs> I mean, I have to study plant pathology for that. All right. Uh, so this speech really, really affected Norman Borlaug. He became really interested in it. And uh, so he actually, while he had been working for the United States Forest Service and forest pathology, you know, this whole time, every now and then he would also work for the Civilian Conservation Corps. Oh. And they were a government entity that was working with the unemployed and the homeless. So this was during FDR's... Um, yeah, it's the 1930s. Presidency. Yeah, yeah, so the only reason I know this is because when I was in high school, I took American history, and our teacher made us memorize a ton of abbreviations for all the different programs that FDR put in place. Oh, yeah. And CCC was one of them ah. for the Civilian Conservation Corps. That's the ah. only reason I know about that. Wow, James freaking historian over here. <laughs> no, Jeez. no, not really. I just, it's more like a PTSD. Like, I just <laughs> Whenever James starts off with, the only reason I know that, the end is because I'm James. Because he's a like, nerd. <laughs> don't make it fun of me. No, we're not making fun. If it were any of us, we would have memorized those and then immediately forgotten them. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> See, here's the thing, though. I feel like I still forget almost everything anyway, but there are certain random things that just come up all the time that yeah. I'm like, oh, the CCC and the TVA. and the- James, you're the sort of guy who walks into an archaeological site and goes, hmm, this. I'm going to study this. I'm going to study this. <laughs> yeah. It's not really an exaggeration. <laughs> now, if, if he did an archaeological dig in the forest, then he would oh, just be boy. sad. This is how Dude. I combine my two passions of my youth. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. We're getting a little off, off sorry, track sorry. here. <laughs> so while he's working for the Civilian Conservation Corps, he's working with unemployed and homeless. And he has said later on that, I saw how food changed them and all of this left scars on me. So he's, he's noticing how 
this abject poverty and lack of food is affecting the homeless and unemployed. That coupled with, you know, he hears this lecture by Dr. Stackman about the diseased crops and all that. So he actually ends up losing his job at the Forest Service because of budget cuts. Hmm. Uh. So he goes to Dr. Stackman, and Dr. Stackman pretty much tells him, yeah, you should, you should switch to plant pathology instead of forest pathology. I knew it's going to have a rivalry. <laughs> trying to pick off students from the other program. Right. Yeah, yeah. Join the dark side. <laughs> <laughs> so he goes, he, he studies under Dr. Stackman. He gets a Master of Science. Uh, he graduates in 1940, and, and then he gets a PhD in plant pathology and mm-hmm. genetics in 1942. Clearly a very smart and able guy. Yeah, yeah, which is interesting because he, he failed the entrance exam for college, but he ends up getting a PhD. So, hmm. yeah, it's pretty interesting. Tells you about the system, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we live in a society. <laughs> Those man. exams, man. Yeah. So this would have been, though, like right at the end of the Great Depression. Yeah, and right at the start of... World, World War II. War II. So, oh, how yeah. dare you? I'm sorry, guys. There's a little bit about World War II here. Oh, no. I, I know we said we're not going to do a lot on World War II because it's overdone, but there's just a little bit. It's not the main part of the story. And we know we keep saying, oh, we're sorry. We're doing every <laughs> single episode, but we we truly are sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there's some very offended listeners right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Someone's going to rate it one star, say, can't even stick to their own rules. <laughs> <laughs> so... In 1941, as many Americans know, Japan attacks Pearl Harbor. Uh, And at this time, Borlaug was still getting his doctorate, but he was working for uh, DuPont in Delaware. And they had like this research lab in pathology. So when Japan attacks Pearl Harbor, Borlaug actually tries to join the military, but he gets rejected because of wartime labor laws. So they pretty much say you have to stay in the workforce Hmm. Is um, that because his profession was so valuable for what was going on? Yeah, I'm not sure exactly. I, maybe it's just because they they had to limit the number of, of recruits versus people in the workforce. So, right, right. Um, so he st- keeps working for his lab, but the lab actually kind of switches and starts working for the government and for the military. Right. So what happens, uh, this is pretty interesting. In the, in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, there's Guadalcanal Island. Oh, yeah. And Japan had gained control of it, and there were U.S. Marines trapped on the island. And Japan had, like, this daily envoy that would patrol the, the island and uh, guard it. So they, could, they weren't able to get supplies to their U.S. Marines on the island. Uh, the only way they could do it was to get these speedboats and go under the cover of night and then jettison these boxes out and hope they would wash up on shore of the island. Wow. wow. Huh. I, I never knew that about Guadalcanal. now. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, you know, the, the issue was these boxes they were using, the glue to hold them shut would uh, disintegrate in the seawater. Oh. So it wasn't working. Yikes, yeah. So they got DuPont Lab, where Borlaug was working, they got them to develop a new type of glue, a new type of adhesive. And within weeks, they invented this new type of glue that resisted corrosion so that they were able to get the supplies to the Marines on the island. That's awesome. Yeah. So you're telling me he invented Gorilla Glue? (laughs) No, dude, Flex Seal. (laughs) (laughs) That's a lot of damage. (laughs) Yeah, so that's just interesting. I mean, that's that's kind of part of what he was doing in this lab uh, during the war. So interestingly, kind of around the same time, a little bit earlier in 1940, so this is a little bit of backstory, right? 
There's the Rockefeller Foundation, which is, you know, a foundation with a bunch of money and they're trying to fund these new agricultural programs. So basically the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation of Yeah, pretty much. You know, yeah. Pretty much of the of the mid 20th yeah. century. <laughs> you could say Rockefeller was pretty rich. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the Rockefeller Foundation actually begins working with the Mexican government because the Mexican government at this time was struggling with their crop production. Uh, and so the Rockefeller Foundation kind of decided they were going to fund a group of American scientists to go to Mexico uh, to start working on their crop problem. So they actually hire Dr. Stackman, who then hires a guy named Dr. Jacob Harar. And then Dr. Harar offers Borlaug the job to come with them. But at this time, this was right when the war was starting and Borlaug declines because he wants to finish working in the lab for the war. But then in 1944, he decides to come and join them in Mexico, join some of their endeavors working in the crops in Mexico. So he works on that project actually in Mexico for 16 years. Wow. He's wow. there doing this. Wow. And so this, this specific parasitic fungus, rust, was particularly devastating in Mexico in the 1930s. Hmm. So now at the dawn of the 1940s, they're trying to actually fix this problem. So... Borlaug joins the team. They're all there trying to fix this problem. And, and what they're kind of doing is, I mean, I don't know how much everybody listening kind of knows about kind of this uh, crop breeding process, but you have to kind of do it by season. You know, obviously crops grow in seasons. And uh, what they're doing is they're finding certain strains of genetics in certain wheat crops and then cross-breeding them with other types to, to find out which type is more resistant to the parasite than others. Right, right. Wow. So they have to find all these different kinds, breed them all together, and then take those hybrids and breed those together and do this multiple times to find out which ones are more resistant and which ones aren't. I guess that makes Crazy. sense why it takes such a long time. I mean, that's Yeah, exactly. Cool. And imagine like how patient you have to be with that, especially when you're seeing like all of the issues that are going on around you with the rust and... That's just a lot of work. Yeah, and the, each generation of wheat takes an entire year because you have to wait for harvest each year. Right, so you're just sitting around waiting for a long time just trying to see if it works or not. Yeah, so that goes into what uh, Borlaug came up with. He came up with this system in Mexico of having double wheat season per year. Uh, so what he did was he discovered that Mexico actually has two harvest seasons— it's kind of already known that they had two harvest seasons, but he discovered it for their scientific research that they could take advantage of this. So they have the central highlands of Mexico, and then there's also the Yaqui Valley, which is at a different altitude and a different temperature, kind of in the north part of Mexico. And he discovered that because of this difference in altitude and temperature, you could actually have a harvest at a different time of year in that valley than oh, in yeah. the highlands. That's really cool. So what you could do is you could have one strain going in the highlands and then crossbreed them and everything, take those and then plant them up in the north in the valley. Oh. You'd have another har harvest that same year. That makes year. sense, yeah. Big brain time. I know. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So it pretty much doubled the speed of their research. But he ran into a couple speed bumps because Dr. Harar, who had hired him, was against this. What? Uh -huh. Why? Yeah, there was a prevailing belief at the time that after you harvest seeds, you have to give them time to rest, quote unquote, after harvesting. 
<laughs> before you can plant them for it to, to yield a full crop. This really is like a recruiting guy he's like the coach and yeah making his players rest or something like that <laughs> right right yeah yeah <laughs> we'll so, get you in there next season buddy Harvest is gonna be great. <laughs> yeah. you got uh, it next time i mean th- it makes sense that in a sense because think about like how many thousands of years people have been harvesting crops and just the kind of beliefs and practices that you kind of habitually engage in over time i mean think about it today like people still say you should wait 30 minutes before you get back in the pool after eating and there's yeah. actually no evidence that that's really a problem but we kind of still say that and just assume it's true right I, mean, I feel like that's one of those things here too it's just oh of course you gotta w- let your seeds rest you can't just yeah. you know keep planting right. them again and yeah, yeah well yeah. I'm, I'm sure there was like a more scientific reason they believed that sure um but it has been debunked so it's not actually the case right uh so actually borlaug and dr harar got into a huge argument about this uh which ended in borlaug actually submitting his reg- resignation from the team but Ooh. Dr. Stackman came and calmed them both down and convinced him to stay on the team and convinced Harar to allow them to, to do the double harvest plan. Wow. Wow. Yeah, the so real hero in this story. Right the here. negotiator. Stack, Stackman <laughs> was the one who had um, got him in the program initially, right? right? Yeah. 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 Stackman's yeah. the one who did, gave the speech earlier and got him in the program. Yeah, everything. Wow. Let's take a second to pay homage to the enablers of history. That's right. <laughs> Thank you. Stackman. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, I guess. <laughs> I'm not sure who I'm thinking, but you know. All the enablers, man. Come on. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> like that guy who flew around the moon so that, you know, the Apollo people could land. <laughs> yeah. Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, the guy who went before them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's missions before that, of course, that went around the moon. But All right. We're getting way off topic here. <laughs> <laughs> Did they harvest stuff off the moon? I mean, we don't know. Well, you really have to look in the gravitational okay, pool. So, okay, guys. Okay. <laughs> okay, so there was an un- unexpected benefit to doing this double harvest plan, uh, which was they were p- doing one strain in the highlands and another strain in this valley. There were actually different climates. So the wheat was getting adapted to different climates. Hmm. So what they were planning to do, right, after they had finished this process and developed a new type of wheat, they were going to then send it around the world to different climates to make it, to test it in different climates and to make it adapt. But they unknowingly were already doing that by doing this plan. Wow. Uh, So it it sped up the process a ton more as well. Hmm. That's like super big brain. Yeah, right. Seriously. They weren't even planning on that and that ended up happening. So Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and they, they also developed, so part of Borlaug's uh, development was something called multi-line breeding, which is where you take the, the hybrids and you keep uh, crossbreeding it with a recurrent parent to keep whatever gene that that parent has. So in order to keep that specific gene strong, strong enough in all the subsequent generations, they have to keep that parent in place, keep breeding with it. Right. So that's kind of what they were doing throughout this whole process. And they were also, what they were also breeding for was not only resistance to the pestilence, but they were trying to develop dwarf wheat, uh, which doesn't sound as good, right? It sounds like it's smaller. But what happens is there's dwarf wheat and there's like normal tall wheat. The tall wheat grows that way because it has better access to sunlight, but the, the reeds and the stems are too thin to support the weight of a lot of grain. So when you have high yield wheat, it ends up breaking the stems and all the crops die. So they wanted to develop dwarf wheat so that it makes the stems thicker. So you could have a lot more yield on one 
strand, like on one uh, on one stem, a lot more grain. Wow. I hope they call the tall ones elves to match the dwarves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's what they were trying to breed these for. Like, I don't know, it's just interesting how there's so many different kinds of genes that go into it. Right, and it's it's cool to think that the the smaller variety is what actually could sustain more grain. I mean, that, that makes sense, I guess. Yeah, it but seems counterintuitive. Right, you wouldn't think of that normally. Huh. Right, huh. yeah. Yeah, and by dwarf, it just means that the the actual, like, stalks of the grain or whatever it's called are shorter. Yeah. So it doesn't actually reach up as tall, uh, but it could still grow a ton of grain. With big beards too, right? <laughs> <laughs> no pain, no grain, man. That's what we always say. <laughs> oh, <Whoa>. no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, yeah, so uh, throughout this whole 16-year process, this is what they're doing. And they, they end up developing the, this type of wheat there are actually several different types that are resistant to several different types of pestilence and are high yield wheat. So now, right at this point, the whole foundation is is obviously now Mexico is trying to plant all of these and they end up growing uh, a ton of grain in the year that they implement it. So it seems to work really well in Mexico. So now they're wanting to spread it in other places of the world. So... At this time, it's now been, you know, over a decade. It's kind of the dawn of the 60s and um, when they're kind of finishing up this process, kind of the mid-60s-ish when they're trying to spread it around other parts of the world. So interestingly, in 1968, there was a a book that was published by Paul Ehrlich uh, and he predicted that in India and in South Asia in general, there would be mass starvation in 1970s and 1980s. Hmm. Uh, And this is kind of what James was talking about earlier, right? Because food growth had seemed to have stagnated, but population growth was booming, especially in South Asia. So he he predicted there's no way that that India and Pakistan are going to be self-sustaining in food production throughout the 70s and 80s, and there's going to be a mass starvation and people are going to die. So how widely read was this? Because I'm wondering what the reaction was to that. No, I mean, it's not just this book itself. This was kind of a prevailing idea in in a lot of science. I I feel like it probably comes out of that Malthusian tradition of seeing the world as eventually reaching this point of, you know, we're all going to die because of overpopulation. That was written about a long time before this with Thomas Malthus. Yeah, that's true. I'm sure that sentiment was there. I just guess they had more to actually quantify by this point based on the food production. That's such a demoralizing thing to read, especially if you're living around that area. Sure. Mm -hmm. So I just wonder how they would have responded to that. It's not just that. Yeah, I mean, it's just the fact that a lot of these scientists are believing this. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's it's really rough. So Borlaug actually gets sent to India. He takes kind of a sample of his grains to kind of test out there. Part of this whole time, he kind of runs into some issues traveling with all these various strains of plants and soils and stuff like that. He's runs into some border issues. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. It's not the easiest time. So at first, right, he just takes like 100 kilograms of this grain to test it out. And then later he tries to bring in... 550 tons uh, in order to test it kind of on a larger scale. And that's what takes forever because they're bringing it from Mexico. It has to go from Mexico through the U.S. all the way over to South Asia. And uh, so it takes a long time to get there. But eventually he's able to import it and he kind of tests it out. This initial seed 
bore a higher yield than in the history of India for that amount of grain. Wow. Oh. Huh. So the Indian government is like, hey, this is pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I like I'll take this. your entire stock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, pretty much they kind of do say that. So he wants to test it again, not only in India, but also in Pakistan. So he imports another 450 tons, 250 of which goes into Pakistan for them to test out. And again, it's a huge success there as well. And this is also part of because the grain had been adapted to the different types of climates. So it's already pretty much ready to go in these different areas. Wow. Hmm. So in 1967, the Pakistani government and the Turkish government get on board. Yeah. (laughs) That's right, yeah. Uh, So Pakistan imports 42,000 tons of grain. And Turkey imports 21,000 tons of grain. Wow. Daniel, your grandparents were fed by this grain. <laughs> think, think about that. Pioneers. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> so this starts what's known as the Green Revolution. And this is pretty much that what James was talking about earlier. All of a sudden in the late 60s, early 70s, you see a massive growth in food production all over the world because of not only this method, but other methods that were being produced in other crops. Hmm. But this specifically was like a massive success worldwide. Seize the means of grain production, grain (laughs) revolution. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so from between 1965 and 1970, Pakistan's wheat yield doubled. Wow. Wow. And India's wheat yield went from 12 million tons to 20 million tons for the entire country in five years. I feel like we hear the word doubled and it might not have the significance it actually is trying to convey. But you know, when you think about it, they're already producing, like what was ton. it, 12 million? Well, so, so India's producing 12 million tons a year. And they almost double to 20 million, yeah. which is That's a crazy. Lot. That's crazy. Just in, just in five years. And it's yeah. not like they're planting in a bunch of different locations. It's like they're using different grain. Right. And yeah. that in yeah. itself is that effective. That's amazing. Right. Yeah. So by 1974, India is completely self-sufficient in all wheat production. Wow. Uh, so before this, they were having to import a ton of their food and wheat, especially huh. uh, because they had too much population. But now they're completely self-sufficient. So did uh, Borlaug get any type of compensation for this? Oh, yeah, yeah. No. So he is pretty well recognized for this. He's not an unsung hero in that nobody really recognized him. I just consider him an unsung hero because not a lot of common people know. About yeah, him. I feel like in the popular imagination, the significance of this is not truly appreciated. Right. I feel like, yeah. yeah. So he he did get the Nobel Peace Prize. Oh wow! This was uh this was a little bit later, but um yeah. So he's I mean he's recognized, but uh, but not fully recognized. Yeah, I mean we already talked about this where a lot of the people we talk about in their time were fairly well known. But nowadays, like no one even knows their name. Also, he probably doesn't have a song written about him yet. So <laughs> that's, that's true. Mm-hmm. That's true. That's right. Uh, it's going to be a fun last name to use in a song. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What rhymes with Borlog? Um, doorknob. <laughs> log. Tree log. Tree log. Well, so speaking of tree logs, that's a good segue, oh. James. Oh, okay. It's a good so, blog. There we go. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> so the um, the whole wheat production system that was now set in place actually contributed to kind of holding back deforestation a little bit because this was actually a hypothesis that Borlaug had developed. So the wheat yield was so high yielding per like per stem of wheat that they actually didn't need as much farmland 
as originally planned. So in India alone, there was a planned 100 million acres that were going to be deforested and turned into farmland that didn't need to be anymore because they had enough grain. That's amazing. Yeah. So not only did he help so much in food production, but he also saved a ton of forestation. So right. he united the two rivaling parties. <laughs> that's right. right. Yeah, that's right. This is such a poetic ending, right? It's, <laughs> it's the bridge between worlds. <laughs> the forestry and the plant pathology. I can imagine like the two groups like coming together, shaking hands, yeah, okay. having just, a big party or something. Just so we're clear though with our audience, this whole rivalry between the two is completely fabricated by <laughs> the hosts of this podcast. You so. don't know that. <laughs> Pretty educated guesses though. Yeah. <laughs> so the the Borlaug the, the Borlaug hypothesis is pretty much word for word. It, it says this: increasing the productivity of agriculture on the best farmland can help control deforestation by reducing the demand for new farmland. Makes sense. Hmm. So this not only this view, but kind of the the whole process of this um, crossbreeding. It was kind of criticized uh, by some people, like some uh, environmental groups. You know, a lot of people don't think this whole like crossbreeding process or this kind of genetically modified process like they. So the whole anti-GMO thing. Well, yeah, it's kind of like that. that. Interesting. (laughs) Which I mean, this is this is crossbreeding, which is, you know, I don't know how much it actually has to do with being genetically modified. Obviously, you're genetically modifying them by selecting which parents are going to be of the next generation or whatever. Right. But some environmental groups were against this and kind of criticized Borlaug for this process, saying that, you know, it's not healthy for it's like it's not naturally occurring so it's it's not healthy interesting you know so some people have come out and said like i don't know if this was a great idea but in general his methods worked dramatically so did anybody ever tell those people about corn and how that (laughs) that was developed like (laughs) thousands of years ago no same we know yeah i know there's a lot of crops that have been you know crossbred to the point that they are now so well, the reason I bring this up is because in Africa, in the early 80s, some people were noticing that they were also having some food shortages. So they were saying, why don't we just apply this same method? But these environmental groups were kind of set against this in the Afri- in Africa. So it took a while for it to actually get set there, Man. Uh, which is really rough. But eventually in 1984, this Sasakawa Africa Association was founded. I believe it was co-founded by Borlaug, or at least he was involved. And uh, so they were trying to develop these same methods in Africa. But the projects that they do are still ongoing today. Um, so it's it's a little bit more difficult there. But um, yeah. So in the end, because of this whole wheat process, it is estimated that Borlaug saved over 1 billion lives. Man. 1 billion. Yeah. That's incredible. Jeez. Who else can claim to have saved over one billion lives? Right. Yeah. It's in such mm. a more subtle way, too. It's not one of those things that's flashy, you know? Like, yeah. Right. You know, like he didn't jump in front of a comet coming towards the yeah. earth. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. That's amazing. Yeah. It's so insane, though. Yeah, I mean, like, just the fact that population growth was booming, but food production had stagnated. And then it just takes, like, this one method to, like, exponentially grow food production worldwide and what's amazing about this too is we have so much food on the planet now that i mean one in america for example the government subsidizes agriculture in that they make so much food that the government has to buy it from farmers today or also think about the fact that um you know we have enough food to feed the whole world easily 
now it's a right. problem of distribution and different kinds of injustices that leads to to you know hunger. It's such a fascinating thing to think about when you mm. consider the the weight of his discoveries. Right. Mm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and, and going back to the like we're talking about the Malthusian prediction of population, I think this invention, coupled with the fact that birth rates are declining really fast actually right now, um, especially in developed countries. I mean, it's weird to think that we're actually probably in more danger of losing population as opposed to having too many people on the planet right now. I mean, it, yeah. obviously those, those numbers can change, obviously, but right. that's amazing to think that his production of this kind of grain in a lot of ways has totally transformed the planet. It's just so, so cool to think yeah. about. Yeah. And it is so like, yeah, behind the scenes, like we were talking about, I feel like in this business in general, I'm sure the recognition is not because of the nature of the job, you're not going to be out like as a celebrity, you know, right. Just because you're working on the farm, it's pretty isolated. Science um, tends to be more in the background behind the scenes doing the work, but yeah. it's among the academics still needs yeah. to be recognized. It's, it's really fascinating. Right. Yeah. It's amazing. Uh, so yeah, just to wrap up with the end of Borlaug's life, um, so he lived until 2009. Wow. Uh, so mm. he wow he lived until he was 95. So I think that's is that the record we have for Unsung uh, Hero? Uh, I think so. I think it might be. Yeah. Wow. So he he died of uh, of lymphoma uh, in in Dallas actually, which is where James and I are right now. Man. Yeah. That's crazy. There you go. But legend has it that he retired in the caves of Moria. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, until yeah. one day like the yeah. Balrog. Yeah, okay, okay yeah, right. yeah. With the dwarf, yeah, that's the dwarf mines. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. It, it's interesting. Even like throughout his retirement, he was still traveling to educate, to do like these different talks, and like to actually continue to advocate for this this method being uh, and this type of wheat to be used around the world so he he lived wow. in dallas in his retirement but he only spent a couple weeks out of the year actually in dallas yeah uh, wow. because Always he traveling. was traveling it's insane yeah. is that the first unsung hero we have who made it past 2000 uh i think so yes i think he's our most recent yeah it's crazy to think about an unsung hero who was in our lifetime and we yeah. never heard about him. I mean, for the most part of our lives, he, we were kids when he was alive. But right. still, you know, the fact that it, you know, it's not just like, oh, it's this person lost to history. But he was here literally 11 years ago. Well, I mean, yeah. a lot of our, of course, older listeners who, of course, you know, would be like our, <laughs> um, our parents' age, for example. They, they lived through it. I mean, they got to see it yeah. actually yeah. happen, which is kind of incredible. Right. Yeah, yeah. Like when, mm. when my parents were born... It was when he was in the middle of doing all this testing. Yeah. It was kind of at yeah. the end of when he was doing the testing, but yeah. Yeah, and my my dad was born in Turkey probably around the time that, you know, Turkey was shipping all this grain in, so. Wow. wow. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. It's pretty crazy. Well, yeah, uh, so that's going to about wrap it up for today. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes and go over to our, uh, what do we have? Instagram? Yeah, we have Instagram. <laughs> uh, go over there, Unsung Heroes Podcast on Instagram. Uh, yeah, any other thoughts, guys? Tell all your friends about this guy so they can all learn about no pain, no grain. <laughs> that's right. And make sure you don't let your seeds take a nap. Yeah, that's yep. right. Yeah, <laughs> ain't no rest for the grains. Ain't no rest for the grains. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Thanks, guys. And we'll go ahead and see you on the next one. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.
He's got the cure for your starvation You're hungry, don't make it bigger, make it better It's thick weed, he'll change the course of human history When he gets on the farmland, I guarantee My oh my, see it growing up to the sky If you've had bread in the last week There's one man to thank for all that wheat He's got the cure for plant disease But don't ask him about his forestry Cause Stackman told Norman that you're working for me But he said he gotta work for the military But they needed to know how to make the wheat grow So he headed down south to Mexico Pasta, cake, and biscuits Muffins, stones, and donuts All thanks to the work that he did People used to wonder How they gonna feed us Giving us our daily bread He's got the cure for your starvation You're hungry, don't Growing up to the sky Norman knew that he had a good reason To move real fast with the double crop season Breeding with his wheat and seeing Seeds that were fruitful and pleasing Multiplied all over the earth Everyone was amazed cause that wheat has girth Making it rain with cereal grain So move aside cause this man's insane Pasta, cake, and biscuits Muffins, scones, and donuts All thanks to the work that he did Growing up to the sky My oh my See it growing up